praying for Pastor. He is very sick. Definitely want him to get better. He was going to come for the main service, and we were just going to do Sunday school like this, but then he texted me last night around 10 o'clock and just said he just could not do it with the with the health there, so just be praying for him. But again, I cannot reiterate the fact that I am definitely appreciative of you guys coming out and listening. I always feel so inadequate and kind of bad just that you guys got to listen to me. Um, there's other guys that should be up here. And so I definitely appreciate just the time. I know that in in my youth, I'm a, a lot more inexperienced than a lot of people, so I definitely appreciate you guys. Um, John chapter 20, John chapter 20. I kind of want to parallel off what we were talking about in um, on Wednesday night a little bit, but also go off into some other directions here as well, just talking about the New Testament in specifics as well as our Christian faith in general. So hopefully we'll look into this a little bit more. Uh, but in John chapter 20, and if you go with me to verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now notice that. They were assembled for fear of the Jews. This was after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he made unto them his hands. He shewed unto them his hands and his side. And then there were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in the hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were with him, or within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. So here in this instance, we obviously this is, you know, post the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ reveals himself once and then a second time to the disciples. And you understand Thomas, right? He says, except I see the prints in your hands, except I see uh, uh, the nails, the, the, the part of your side. He says, I'm not going to believe. And then eight days later, Christ appears again to him and shows him the evidence. He does not deny him the evidence. Christ shows him the evidence. But then again, he makes the claim. He said, blessed are they that have not seen and believed. And we would fall into that category. So that is a very good thing there. Turn with me also to Acts chapter 5. Again, these are familiar passages. We just talked about them. But just for preface for today, Acts chapter 5. And verse 34. Acts chapter 5 and verse 34. It says, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And said to them, Take Said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theotis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves. He had specifically 400 followers. We understand, based on Paul, that after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he revealed himself to roughly 500 plus people. Theotis had 400. 
says who was slain. He was slain just like Christ was. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. Now the, the, the parallel here is what Gamaliel is saying is, again, to reiterate the fact of what we talked about on Wednesday, this is not a doctrine for religion. The fact that, look, if, if a religion has success, then it's real. That's not, you know, then Muslim, Islam would qualify. Uh, then, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism was, would qualify. What he was talking specifically about here was the Messiah, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. It was not a uncommon thing for someone to claim in Jewish culture that they were the Messiah. They had many messiahs who, who stood up. That's why they critiqued Christ so hard to make sure that he was actually authentic. But what Gamaliel was saying was, this guy is the real messiah then his followers are going to congregate and they're also going to have sustenance and success. And so the question is, what made Theotis' disciples scatter, but what made the disciples come together? Kind of reiterating the fact of what we talked about um, the other day. There's also the fact of, and we're talking about like the intention of the New Testament that we have as we are a continuation from that, just the fact that the disciples themselves, as we noticed back in John, post-resurrection were hiding for fear of the Jews, right? There was not any kind of belief that Christ was actually going to rise again. And so there had to have been something that spurred, just as Paul, there had to have been something that that invested in Paul's life that made him uh, go on with his faith as well. Something, they had to see something. Something had to expose itself to them, and we understand to be the Christ. Go with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, you've read all these verses before, but just to lay a foundation of what we're going to look at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are all found false witnesses of God, right? False witnesses, because they witness the testimony of Jesus Christ physically. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. The point I want to make here is that our faith is literally substantiated by evidence. It's built upon a foundation of evidence. People say, what differs between Christianity and other religions? Ours is built upon that foundation, right? It's not bad to require evidence for our Christian faith. And the more that I grow in Christ, the more closer I I get to these things, the more it becomes more personal to me because I feel closer to the person of Jesus Christ because of his reality, because of, of what he was as a person. And so we understand Christ had this testimony on earth but why is it so hard to find God? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it so hard? Lost people say sometimes that it's so hard to find him. It's almost as if he just kind of flees your grasp. And as Christians in your life, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but it is hard to kind of see him work in your life sometimes. As we go through our ups and downs, our successes and our pitfalls, sometimes it's hard to see him working and to make sure that it's him, right? When things happen in my life, I always ask myself, did I cause this to happen? Did God cause this to happen, right? Is this biblical? Is this unbiblical? But why is God so hard to find? Because we believe the New Testament, but we understand that there is thousands of critics, thousands of people who do not believe it, right? So how can we substantiate it as fact? The biggest thing that kind of appalls me, and we talked about this last time, was that they made it hard to believe in God. Christ made it hard to believe in himself. We just talked about the resurrection. He could have shown himself to the Jews, to Pilate, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish court. He could have showed himself to anybody, but he hid himself and showed himself specifically to those nobodies that he had had his earthly ministry with, making it hard to believe, right? He revealed himself. The first two witnesses were females, and in Jewish culture, you couldn't accept the testimony of a female, right? He literally made it hard to believe in the Christian faith. He could have showed himself, but he, he, he made it based on faith as far as our New Testament belief system is. 
Why did he do this? And the thing is, is literally, and this is one of the coolest things, is he protects, every second of every day, he protects your free will. He protects the free will of mankind. If you look at his earthly ministry um, in the Gospels, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did was restraint. He restrained himself from revealing himself in his deity. He kept himself human. He was divine, but he kept himself human because if he was to overt himself and perform too many miracles, then the people would automatically claim him as king. We saw in the early Gospels that at one period of time, they actually tried to force him to become king. And he had to flee. He had to walk back through the crowd. So he couldn't overt himself too much. But then if he wouldn't have showed his deity at all, we never would have thought he was the Christ. So it was this balance in the Gospels of Jesus Christ trying to conceal his deity because he has to protect our free will. If God came down today and revealed himself as who he is, we wouldn't have a choice to believe in him or not. But God gives us a choice because that's the only reason that you can have true love and have the true relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, to kind of, there's many other reasons about this, but like in Romans chapter three, we understand that we literally do not seek God in our flesh. God says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth. So we understand that we don't come to God in our flesh. But God draws us to himself in three specific ways. And I'll show you really quick. Go to, um, for the first one is God's word. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And this is probably the most famous amongst Baptists. Romans chapter 10. And we'll start reading in verse 13. Paul says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? That gives me great comfort because even Elijah asked God, God, they don't believe what you're telling me to say. You know, I don't know if you guys ever get discouraged about people you're trying to witness to. But even Elijah in his frustration asked God, God, they don't believe what you're telling me to speak to them. But in verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Number one, the word of God brings the testimony of Jesus Christ to us. It draws us to Christ. But that is not the only thing that draws us to Christ. And a lot of Baptists, they don't believe in looking at any other evidence because that takes away from the authority of Scripture. But it does not. It doesn't, right? The Bible is the first one. The second thing that God testifies us to, or draws us to him, he woos us to him in, is creation. Go to Romans chapter 1. And again, you already know all these, but we'll just review them really quick. Romans chapter 1, in verse 20. The Bible tells us, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. This is the, the key part right here, so that they are without excuse. God says, okay, without the Bible, I gave you creation. And you can look at creation, and it has so much evidence to the point of the fact that when you stand before Christ, you will not have an excuse, even if you say you didn't have a Bible. Do I understand that? No. But is it true? Yeah, because the Bible says it, right? God says no man's going to stand before him with an excuse. So number one, God draws us by his word. Number two, creation. Number three, the moral law. And we've talked about this before. Go to Romans chapter 2, in verse 14. Romans 2, 14, we're right there. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law... These having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the means while excusing, accusing or else excusing one another. So three things. We have God's word that brings us to Christ. We have the testimony of creation, and we have the moral law that God's instilled within ourselves. 
So you can use all three when it, when it talks about God's drawing us to him or as far as our ministry to lost people. All three things have to come into play when it comes to our approach to God, right? And to kind of go back, we talked about how Christ had to conceal himself, but he reveals himself through these things to give us a choice because we all have a choice whether or not to accept or reject him. There's many other reasons why Christ came in the flesh. I like this word picture, though, because there's so many things that we have in our everyday life that testify of God and what he has instilled in us. I'm pretty sure you guys have all seen any kind of movie where there's a king who falls in love with a peasant woman. But she does not accept him as king, right? She could enjoy herself in his riches and in the castle and all the things he could give her, but that does not mean that she loves him, right? She does not love him personally, right? You can't, it's like kind of an arranged marriage kind of thing, right? You can't force somebody to have that kind of relationship. But in the movie, the king usually disguises himself as a peasant, meets the woman on the streets, and then they build a relationship and then they fall in love, right? Because she can relate to him at that level. And then after they fall in love, he reveals himself as king. Now, where in the world did we get this idea from? Right? God, in his essence of his deity, we can't come to him, as Romans 3 tells us. So what he does is he disguises himself in our flesh, in the likeness of our sinful flesh. He meets us there. We can fall in love with him. We can get convicted by him. We can build a relationship with him. And then afterwards, he shows us the riches of the glory of his inheritance, right? That's how God disguises himself and brings us to Christ. And it's an amazing thing. But to say that there's no, that just the word of God is the only testimony, God's testimony is the absolute nature of all creation, all right, that brings us to him. And I just thought that was a cool point there. So kind of a brief review, because today we're not going to like talk about the boring aspects of manuscript evidence again. All right, we're going to, but what I want to do is talk about the New Testament and the power and testimony of what the apostles had, as well as why we should believe in our New Testament today. So just a brief review. We just talked about how Christianity is based on the physical appearance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm not here today because of fables or because of blind faith. I'm here because 2,000 years ago, some men saw a guy that died and was buried and rose again. And so I believe in that, right? And that was to be Jesus Christ. So we understand that it all hinges on the resurrection. We also understand that as far as motive to make up any kind of story, the apostles had no motive, all right? They were ashamed. They were scared. They were hiding, right? They thought Jesus was dead, all right? It was the woman who brought the testimony that he was resurrected to them. So as far as a motive, they even testify of themselves as doubtful and ashamed, right? I would have been ashamed too because you got to realize... They left their families, they left their homes, they left their jobs, they left everything for this man, and now he's dead. Now what do they do with their lives, right? And they leave, they leave themselves like this in the testimony of Scripture, right? We talked about how people say that, well, the, the disciples stole the body, but they couldn't have stole the body because these were just normal tax collectors and normal men, normal fishermen, and there was a bunch, a, a whole band of Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb. So the disciples would have had to disarm them, move the two-ton tomb, steal the dead body of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. And also, the Jews, right, we talked about how Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. He gave the tomb that Christ was buried in. He easily, as being a member of the Sanhedrin, they could have just took Jesus' body and paraded the corpse through the streets and called the Christians foolish, but you don't see that. And, the, and, and they would have if they actually had the body, but they didn't have the body, right? We also noticed by the testimony of Gamaliel that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah because his followers didn't disperse. They gathered together and, and made our Christian faith of what we have today. And so just a brief review of how the facts that go into that, but today we're going to kind of look through what specifically did Jesus say about the word of God and, and what did he testify as far as what, whatever scriptures are and things like that. Now, one thing I do have to touch base on, though, is history. Right? Why is it important to make sure 
that we study the history of the Bible? Why can't we just take it at face value? Why is historical accuracy important? Well, a lot of people nowadays, we live in a postmodern society where everything is relative, right? And we want, every, we want to make everything relative. We want to make truth relative. We want to make morality relative, right? We want to make everything relative because we want to take away from the truth. And many things are nowadays being said about history, right? A lot of people say that uh, history is just a series of lives that everyone has decided to agree on. George Orwell says that whoever controls the past controls the future, and whoever controls the present controls the past, right? Um, people have a lot of different opinions about history, and specifically the history of our Christian faith. And one of the things that I hear a lot, almost more than anything, is I cannot believe in the Bible because there's too much human influence, too much human influence. If man has touched it, it has to be fallible. And nowadays, the postmodern relativists, what they're doing is they're saying that we cannot get an objective view of history. We can't, we can't go back through history and determine what is objectively true or what is objectively false. And so I just want to touch on that really quick before we actually go into the New Testament. Now, to say that the New Testament is fallible because man made it, right? If man made it, it has to have error. That's a pragmatic argument that makes no sense. Is man fallible? Yes. Does everything he make have error? No. I remember the days when we got the fine purple chairs that we're sitting in today, right? We took them out of the packages, right? We were all giddy. We were setting them all up. No one stopped and said, these chairs have to be, something has to be wrong with them because man made them, right? No one said that because they're perfectly fine as you're sitting in them today. Uh, new builds of archaeology, right? You go into a big skyscraper or a tower. People go into that. They don't go, man, this thing has to be fallible because man made it. No. So that's a pragmatic argument. And people that say that, the burden of proof falls on them. They have to prove how there is error in this thing if man really wrote it. Now, a brief history of historical criticism in the ninth, or not the ninth, but the, the um, yes, the ninth century through about the 15th century, during the medieval times, there was really no accurate recording of history, right? Everybody took everything at face value because everything was taken as an eyewitness account. But during the 15th century, during the Italian Renaissance, they started going back through the, the works of antiquity, so back through the Latin documents and the Greek documents, and they started developing proofs, specifically in the documents of the Bible, because we have more than any other ancient document. They started kind of historically verifying whether or not what was said was true or whether it was false. And this is important because there's a lot of Christian apologists in the past, like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and they said, we believe the Bible is the word of God because it's authenticated by miracles. But then they go to miracles, well, what's your foundation for miracles? Well, we believe miracles are divine because miracles are divine, right? It was a circular argument. And so when the critics came out, they started saying, well, we don't believe in this because you have no foundation for miracles. So the Christian apologists in the Italian Renaissance started going through all the documents, and they started historically verifying those things to give more credence to miracles. Because we talked about it last week, like Luke. Luke records 84 historically confirmed facts, places, things in the book of Acts, but he also records 34 miracles that happened. So if he was right on the 84, then what makes him crazy on the 34 miracles? And so this is what they started to do, and they started to look back through these things. Another crazy thing that was happening at this time was the Protestant Reformation. Okay? At that time, the Catholics had the Bibles, but the Bibles were in Latin. Normal people don't read Latin, right? Just like today, normal people don't read Greek. That's why we don't go to the Greek, right? I can barely understand English. But the Catholic Church, they were, they were the only ones that had the Bibles, and they were in Latin, so they, whatever they preached, the people took at face value. So they were preaching doctrines of penance, doctrines of purgatory, right? Doctrines of the human priesthood of man, and people believe that kind of stuff. But then guys like Erasmus and Martin Luther and Tyndale started translating the Bibles from Latin into the common language, and people started becoming literate and having Bibles, and then they started reading them, and they're like, something doesn't match up. 
That's why those guys were burned at the stake, all right, for translating the Bible into something we could read. So people became more literate. People started looking at historical documents. And in fact, a lot of the early church fathers, like Tertullian and Polycarp and Clement of Alexandria, the guys who came after the apostles, they came from pagan nations. But it was the historical documents that they looked at from the apostles that they took and made them Christians, made them believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So can we be objective about history? Can we look back and, and, and actually say that we can get accurate things from history? Because nowadays people are saying you can't for two reasons. Number one, you can't take an event that happened in history and have an experiment, you, like science. You can't take A and B and do an experiment and come to a conclusion. Therefore, we can't have fact. Number two, you can't believe history because it was written by man and there's no neutral observers. Man always had a bias. So you can't believe anything in the, in the past because everybody has a bias. I want to go to the people who come up with this stuff and just be like, how do you live life? Like, how does it even make sense, right? And just utter subjectivity. But here's the reason why they do this. You remember when, and I've referenced this before, when the Jews wanted to crucify Christ, right? Pilate's like, this man's done nothing wrong, right? Even Pilate's wife said, I've had some bad dreams about this. You can't crucify this guy. But he washes his hands of it and he makes a statement. He says, what is truth? And when you crucify Christ and you take Jesus out of the picture, what you do is you destroy truth. And that's exactly what the liberals and the postmodernists are trying to do, is they're trying to take away any element of truth so that we can't come to any conclusion. And as long as I can hypnotize people with this, we just keep going on and on and on and on. But to answer these, right, can you test history? You can definitely test history, right? And nowadays we have more we have more things that we can test the historical documents than ever before, right? We don't have to just base our belief off of just the testimonies of eyewitnesses in the past. We have studies in anthropology, linguistics, science, geography. We have the technology to look at so many things in the past, such as the New Testament, that we don't even have to rely solely just on what the people said, but we can cross-check it with everything in history, geography and everything. And so we have more evidence now than we ever had before. But to also say that you can't believe in history because of man's opinion, man's opinion doesn't change what happened. All right? There could be many different eyewitness accounts of Abraham Lincoln's death, and somebody could have thought it was funny, and somebody could have thought that it, that it, was, that it was sad. But here's the point. It wasn't the, the idea or the opinion of his death that affected history. It was the absence of, his, of himself as the president. And so you can make opinions. You know, there is thousands of eyewitness accounts of 9-11. That doesn't change what actually happened, though. That doesn't change the objectivity of history. And we also talked about Jewish historians. They're one of the greatest historians in regards to the Holocaust. They obviously have incentive, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong about the Holocaust. And so you can't use this argument. You can't relativize everything. But here's the deal. When we're looking at history, we're also not looking for mathematical certainty that something happened. We live in a universe of probability, all right? And we'll touch on this in a second, but take, take a court system. Right? Take a court system. Why do we even have a jury? There's been so many people that have been convicted, not based on a mathematical certainty that they committed a crime, but the jury weighs the evidence and the probability, if it weighs in favor of that person, then they'll convict him. That's the same thing we do with history. We don't need 100% mathematical certainty that something happened. Am I certain that God died for my sins and rose again? Yes. But can I prove it 100%? No. Because we live in a world of probability. Why did God stick us in a world like this? Why didn't God just make us so we could 100% know that he's real? Doesn't it seem like if he was smart and he was God, he'd do that? No, because he's smarter than what we are, right? His wisdom is higher than us. His foolishness is wiser than us. Why do we live in a world of probability? It goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, free will. If he 100% could prove that he was the Christ, there would be no free will. We'd have to accept it, right? But if it's probable, this is where faith comes in. God says, for by grace he is saved through faith. 
Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Faith is the connection of choice, right? I can't 100% prove that God exists. So in that little gap of the evidence I don't have, I put my faith and trust in him. That's my choice. That's what saves us. If we lived in a world that was void of probability, there'd be no faith and there'd be no salvation. But it takes just as much as it takes belief and faith in God, it takes belief and faith in the absence of God. Because in both things, you have gaps of evidence that you can't 100% prove. They can't prove that a million years ago, an amoeba turned into a higher life form. They can't prove that objectively, right? And so that takes faith, all right? And so you have to kind of understand that in both aspects, right? Intent doesn't matter when it comes to history. You can still look at it objectively. So um, I don't know if you guys run into that. I just have a lot of people that throw that at me, and it's, just, it's frustrating because it's just like you can't just subjectivize everything, right? We can actually look at history and get an accurate account of the New Testament. Now, in closing here, we'll go to what did Jesus Christ actually say about the New Testament? Right, what did he say about the New Testament? Did he testify it as scriptures? What did the apostles say about the New Testament? We're going to turn to some Bible verses here. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, just some different things that God talked about in regards to Scripture. Because we've talked about how you can look at the New Testament as it's historically accurate. But what did Jesus and what did the apostles say, not only about the New Testament, but also about the Old Testament? Matthew chapter 4, in verse 4. This is Jesus speaking, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Right? It's divinely authoritative. In verse 7, it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Verse 10, Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That, as well as 92 occasions, Jesus and the apostles supported the position of saying, It is written. That's throughout the whole New Testament. It is written. Go to Matthew chapter 5. We're, we're there and go to verse 17. I think this is the right verse. From that time forth, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's another verse that talks about how the word of God is imperishable. I think I had the wrong scripture there. But you remember the verse that says that Christ says, Not a dot or a tittle, nothing shall pass until all things shall be fulfilled. He says that the word of God is imperishable. He says the word of God is settled in heaven. It's also infallible. Go to John chapter 10, verse 35. John chapter 10, verse 35. Verse 34, it is written in your law, I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the, world of, the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. All right, go to John 17, verse 17. Jesus Christ said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. It's infallible. It is truth. It's also inerrant. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Right? Not that you don't know the errors in the Bible, but ye do err, because you don't know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. It's an errant. It's historically reliable. All right? Go with me to Matthew. We're already there. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37. Matthew 24 and verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. He reverences Noah. 
In Matthew chapter 12, he references Jonah. In Matthew chapter 24, he confirms Daniel as a prophet, right? A lot of people think he was just a, a historian, but to call him a prophet meant that what he prophesied was divinely accurate. He calls him a prophet, so we understand that Jesus quoted all scripture, not just New Testament, but Old Testament, as historically reliable. It's also scientifically accurate. You're in Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Matthew 19, verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Right? They twain shall be one flesh. Now, so he's testifying of things as far as the Old Testament. He's confirming them in the New Testament, and there's many more than this. We're just looking at a few. But just as if you look at the confirmations, and we can understand that Jesus was a real person historically, and that the apostles were pe real people historically, and you can verify the documents, their eyewitness accounts, and then they also testify of the Old Testament, and those are accurate, then we can conglomerately assume that the Bible is a very accurate document, and we can believe in what it says. All right? We can believe in what it says. Go to John chapter 3, verse 12. John chapter 3, verse 12, here he's talking to Nicodemus. And this is a very important key fact. This is a very important claim that Jesus makes. In John chapter 3, verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What was Jesus saying there? He goes, I have told you accurate earthly things, and you still don't understand. How would you understand if I teach you heavenly things? So what he's saying is, is, Logically, he goes, I'm speaking to you in concepts that you as humans should understand. And he's saying that I'm not saying anything that's fallible. I'm not making up fables. I'm not saying anything confusing, and you're still not getting it. So he's affirming the, the fact that he's speaking in a very logical, very coherent, and very historical manner, right? Go, to, go with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, the Word of God has ultimate supremacy. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3. He said, but he answered and said to them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God, the commandment of God by your tradition? Right? He says in verse 7, ye hypocrites, well did Esaias prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. For in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Right? He, he makes a differentiation between the commandments of God and what's commanded of men. And we talked about it last week. How Paul even distinguishes what Jesus says and what he says. The apostles distinguish between what Christ said and what they said. They didn't try to finagle things in God's mouth to try to promulgate their religion. They were very separate as to what was said in regards to them and what was accounted for in regards to what Jesus Christ actually said. In John chapter 5, right, Jesus says, By the scriptures you think you have eternal life, these are they which testify of me. He was talking about the Old Testament. He says the Old Testament testifies of me. In the um, next hour, we're going to talk about how the disciples, when they first came to Christ, they were reading their Old Testament. They said, we found the one that Moses talked about, right? The Old Testament uh, testifies of Christ. Now, what did this say? That's kind of towards the Old Testament, as you understand. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says that all authority has been given to him in heaven as well in earth, and he imputes that into his word. But what does the New Testament say about truth, right? What does he say about the, the people coming after Christ? He affirmed that the things behind him were accurate. What did he say about the New Testament? Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to do Bible drills. First one there, stand up and read. Start throwing candy at you guys. John chapter 14. Start reading in verse 25. It says, 
These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. If you go to John chapter 16, he said, I have a lot more things I want to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. Can you imagine? He was, Christ was talking about the kingdom. Can you imagine if he pulled out the mystery? They couldn't even understand the kingdom let alone the mystery. They thought it was a kingdom of power, a kingdom of politics, a kingdom of war. God says, no, it's a kingdom of man's heart. So God's saying, I can't tell you about the mystery yet because of the fact that you can't even handle this that I'm giving to you. And so we understand, though, that when the New Testament um, writers wrote that they were speaking out of inspiration of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that Jesus says was going to come upon them and bring all things to their remembrance, all things to their remembrance. Now go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. So Christ says that he's going to impart his spirit. They're going to send the spirit to these guys. They're going to write down what they've remembered. Divinely remembered, right? Because mankind is fallible, but Christ is not. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We understand, and they are built upon the foundation of all the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, right? Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstones. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the New Testament church was built on the doctrine of Right? They, consti- they continued steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles. So what God imparted to the apostles, they wrote down. It was divinely inspired because it was written by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, The natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they're spiritually discerned. He said, The words that I'm speaking, they're, they're spiritual words coming out of me that were given to me by the Holy Ghost that was sent from Christ, just like he prophesied in the Gospels was going to happen. All right? In 1 Corinthians chapter um, 14, 37, he talks about the fact that the writings that God gave him were his command, right? In Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks about how the gospel that he received was not of man. It was by revelation of Jesus Christ. He was very explicit about that. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says that, I thank God that you received the word that I gave to you, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, right? As it is in spirit and power. And so they, they made these differentiations all through scripture. In um, 1 Peter 3.15, Peter references Paul's writings, and he says, you guys have heard of the things that Paul's writing. Some of them are hard to be understood, right? The the things that those which are unstable rest to their own destruction, right? But he calls them scriptures, though. Peter calls Paul's writings scriptures. They affirm that they're scriptures. 2 Timothy um, 3.15, let's just go there. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says this to Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, he testified. Now, he's not talking about the New Testament here, right? You've got to realize that Paul's epistles were written before the Gospels were. He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Thou hast known the scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. If you look at all their translations, they don't say perfect there, right? Because the religions nowadays don't want people, they don't want that kind of standard. Thoroughly furnished unto every good work, right? So there's important, there's a necessity for the word of God. It's divined just as Christ talked about it, Old Testament, just as he prophesied that it would come to the new. Man wrote it, but it was divinely inspired, as Peter says. He says, no scripture was given by any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He said these things weren't written by the will of man, but by the will of God. And the apostles authenticated the word in closing here. This is why we don't need to add to the Bible. 
because of what the apostles did. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 12. Go there. 2 Timothy, or Corinthians, excuse me, 12, verse 12. There was two qualifications to become an apostle. The apostles wrote the New Testament, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs, in wonders, in mighty deeds. Now also, if Paul, right, was trying to fabricate something, the Corinthians could have easily said, that's not true, Paul, you didn't do those things, but they never said that, right? Paul said he did the signs of an apostle among them. The second qualification for an apostle was to see the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says, have I not seen the Christ, right? Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was the last one to see Christ. So he was the last one to have the authority to write down the scripture, all right? That's what authenticated it was the signs and the miracles, right? The signs and the miracles that they did. And so if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, though, and, and this will be the last verse here, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse, or let's go back to chapter 1 first. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The first verse before that, it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. You go to um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing the witness with what? Both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. So when the, now your, your New Testament was formed somewhere in between like 8380 and 8393 at the Council of, I think it was called Hippo. That's when the New Testament fathers conglomerately, it was divinely inspired because we believe that God preserved his word. So these men didn't choose, God chose what was going to go in the New Testament canon. And one of their criteria was, was it written by an apostle? Did that apostle confirm themselves with their authority of the signs and wonders? If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says that the signs and the wonders and all those things are going to come to pass. They're going to cease. So eventually, there's going to be people in the church that can't confirm themselves with those things. If somebody wants to add to Scripture, but they can't do the signs of an apostle and they never saw the resurrected Christ, they have no authority to add anything to our Bible. But everything we have in this New Testament was written by an apostle, and it was confirmed by those miracles and signs and wonders. And so there's no need for more. It's perfect. Everything's in there. It's historically accurate. We can put our faith and trust in it. And again, I do apologize if this was just all over the place. But I just like the fact that we can look at our New Testament Bible and people say, this is just a phony book. It's like, really? Here's the danger is that people know too little about the Bible. Have you ever heard that you can do a lot of damage with a little Greek? You can do a lot of damage if you know just a little bit about the Bible. But if you actually look into it, it's crazy. Mark Twain said it wasn't the things that he didn't understand about the Bible that bugged him. It was the things he did understand that disturbed him. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the people who came out. Help us just in the next service to worship and honor you. And we just praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.